Hey friends, you ever wonder why your partner or other people just annoy you sometimes? Our guests today learn the hard way that people just have different perspectives and different experiences. That's when he discovered the Enneagram and how it helps us find our true selves. You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 329, Jesse Eubanks and Relationships in Enneagram. Welcome back to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. And I'm so excited that you are here. This is going to be a great one. We're talking about one of my favorite topics today. It's one of those uh, one of those things. I just love finding out about how people relate. Okay, that's that's a little, uh, little teaser there. Uh, if you are new to the show, just know that you can get show notes at halfwaytherepodcast.com. If you'd like to help support the show, you can always do that. Go there, halfwaytherepodcast.com. Hit that Patreon button, which is just a way you can give a few bucks a month to help keep us running. Some of you do that, and I really appreciate it. And I thank you for going to uh, to share just a little bit. I, it's, it helps keep us running every single month. All right, let's get into our conversation. This is exciting. Uh, our guest, he's a certified Enneagram coach and uh, host of the Enneacast, which I've had the pleasure of being a guest on. It was a really wonderful experience. Um, it's a podcast kind of exploring the personality and relationships through the lens of Enneagram. He's also the founder and executive director of Love Thy Neighborhood, a discipleship and missions agency mobilizing people to follow Jesus and serve the poor in modern culture, which of course I think is super cool. Our guest is Jesse Eubanks. Jesse, welcome to Halfway There. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you on the show, and uh, it's really exciting. I also should mention you have published a book called How We Relate, Understanding God, Yourself, and Others Through the Enneagram. That's out, and uh, uh, certainly interesting as well. That's uh, Tell us a little bit about kind of what people will find in that book, and then where else God has you right now. Give us a little bit beyond the broad strokes I've given us. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, I've got this book out, uh, how we relate and it does, it explores the Enneagram and in short, um, it is the Enneagram book that I wish that I had found when I first came across the Enneagram. I love that. So, so I wanted to, uh, I wanted a book that would explore the, um, the, the psychological personality theory that is the Enneagram. Um, but I also wanted something that was really going to drive, um, me and others into the heart of Jesus. Um, how does Jesus meet each of us? And uh, kind of the big question, you know, is um, how is our personality and our relational style shaping our life and our relationship with God and everybody else? Um, a lot of times, I think we make the mistake of coming to the table and just sort of thinking um, that it's, uh, we're like not contributing all that much, like our personality, our lens, our way of seeing the world, our way of processing the world. Um, so if we have just sort of the right theology and we just see the truth, it's just sort of empirical. Uh, my personality plays no role in that. Um, well, I would beg to differ. If you go and mm -hmm. uh, if I ask, uh, you know, your closest friends, your spouse, your kids, your personality is showing up uh, in all these other areas of life. Um, and it's also true that it's showing up with God. So um, so this book is uh, is designed to help people grow in self-clarity. Um, but unlike traditional Enneagram teaching that sort of teaches we've got these vices and we need to um, step into these virtues to counter those vices, um, 
we as Christians believe that, uh, to quote Keller, um, we are not saved by good advice, but by good news. And um, and so this book um, sort of um, upends traditional Enneagram teaching by going through the good news of Jesus. And then out of that, what does it look like to be a disciple mm. given your particular personality? Yeah. So what I really love about this idea that personality matters is I don't know about you, but I thought that I should be like everybody else and that somehow everybody had some sort of secret, like they could see the way the world was that I just couldn't understand. And so when I found the Enneagram, it helped me figure out, oh, no, this is just kind of normal for somebody who's like me to see the world like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, really transformative for my wife and I in particular, you know, things that were just kind of driving each other batty, you know, we'd, we'd take things personal. Um, oh, they're doing this on purpose. Um, well, after, you know, starting to get to know the Enneagram, we came to realize, oh my gosh, we very much see the world mm-hmm. differently. And the decisions she makes and the responses she gives make total sense in light of her personality as well as mine. And so, um, so it does. It, it gives us just a, uh, a lot more empathy uh, for other people, but it also lets us be a little kinder to ourselves in the process too. Mm, right, which should not be underestimated how valuable it is to be kind to yourself, right? Like that really matters. Yeah, yeah. For some reason in Christendom, we think uh, God really wants us to beat the living crap out of ourselves all the time. Uh, and, uh, and, and that is not the case at all. Um, you know, the way that... Uh, um, the way that we love our neighbors is supposed to come out of it's to some degree a sense of of um, uh, care for ourselves as well. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So I I just that gets me every time. It's not you. God actually loves you. The gospel is good news, my friends. The gospel is good news for who you are and who God has made you to be. Um, and it's actually freedom to be who you are. Yeah. Well, let, okay. Let's talk about that for a second. Um, you know, I. You know, I this is the bad part when you when you interview somebody who also <laughs> You're a podcast does their own too. podcast every now and then. I'm like, hey, you know what? Let's That's just right. run with we'll, that. We'll get into your story here but, in a minute, but I'll let you run, run with this. Let's go. Well, well, let's talk about that for a second because you know you just talked about this notion of gosh, I love that when you are reminded that God loves you, and you know I know from you being on our show that you're in the heart triad, so um, so you're a feeler um, and. Um, I am as well. So I'm in the heart triad also. And here's like the the fascinating thing, right? When in the Enneagram uh, theory, there are three triads. There's the heart triad, the head triad, and the body triad. The heart triad is dealing with the issue of shame. The head triad is dealing with the issue of fear. And the body triad is dealing with the issue of guilt. Um, and so often, so much of our preaching only touches one of those. It really emphasizes the issue of guilt. Um, I think it is a mistake to not talk about the issue of guilt, but I also think it is a mistake when we're only emphasizing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so do we need to be talking about Christ's death on the cross, the forgiveness of our sins? Absolutely, 100%. But we also need to be talking about what do we do with people's fear and what do we do with people's shame? So one of the things that I talk about in the book is that while the antidote for guilt is God's grace and forgiveness, the antidote for fear is actually God's presence. It's the most repeated command in scripture. Don't be afraid. 
And it's this idea that God is with us. God is with us. God is with us. Um, but let me circle back around to this. So you you talked about, oh gosh, I love it when we're reminded that God loves us. And that's me too. So when um, um, the antidote for folks that are struggling with shame is God's delight. Mm. So it's this belief that uh, my father looks at me and has resounding affection for me. My presence actually brings him pleasure. Um, and that when I believe that, it begins to heal my shame. So, um, so I, you know, looking backwards at my life, um, you know, I grew up in the church and there were all these sermons about guilt and forgiveness. And I needed those. I appreciated those. Mm. But actually, those did not, that is not how I came to know Jesus. Yeah. Um, I came to know Jesus at the moment that somebody told me, you matter to God. And it wasn't until years, decades later that I realized, oh, well, it's because I'm a feeler, and it's because my big overriding issue in life is my own embarrassment and shame and sort of sense of that I'm broken. And to find out that the God of the universe has incredible affection for me, that was the, that was the aspect, the angle of the gospel that I desperately needed, and that's, that's what I responded yeah. to. Yeah. All right. So something that I'm hearing from you is I love that you're very um, accepting of, hey, this is... We need that too. We need the guilt piece. That's true, right? That we need that, but it's not all. And I think that's true. We need. It's not the full. It's not the fullness of everything that we get. And I've, um, I probably I got this from Dallas Willard, but the idea that the gospel doesn't start in Genesis three, it starts in Genesis one, right? Like, there, that God is actually pleased with the thing that He created. Sin is a problem, but He He cares about. Uh, he cares about us, even even through yeah. that, right? Um, yeah. So I love that. Very very cool. So. Tell us that story. How did you come to faith and what what happened? Yeah, I grew up um I grew up in um a, a pretty broken home. My my parents divorced when I was really young. Um and both of my parents in their in for various reasons had really uh difficult life circumstances and um health issues, mental health issues that really made parenting hard for them. Um, you know, all of us are born into a story. We have our own story that starts at birth, sure, but we're born into a story. And my parents' story was just very hard. The result of that, though, is that by the time that I got to being a middle schooler, um, my parents were just pretty tuned out. They they weren't they weren't real dialed into me. They were not attuned to who I was as a person. So my shame had just become really acute. Um, and uh, yeah, I went on this retreat. And on this retreat, you know, my youth pastor, you know, I was 13 years old and he looked at me and he said, you matter to God. And it was just, I knew it, I knew it to be true. And I knew it to be the most beautiful thing that I'd ever heard. And, um, and so out of that experience, yeah, I gave, I gave my life to Jesus and have been attempting to walk with him, um, ever since. And, um, and so even, even, you know, in the decades since, I still find myself very much drawn to um, to folks that speak to this issue of of shame and delight, and um, you know. So I think of like Brendan Manning. I mean, Brendan Manning, like mm. you know, you put that, you put you put some of his sermons on. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be crying by the end because uh, you know when he just talks about um, God loves you as you are, not as you should be. I mean, that is yeah, just so good. beautiful. Yeah, I love that. 
Fascinating. So yeah, so middle school, uh, you, you came to Christ. What was sort of your early discipleship experiences like, say, through high school? What, what was? How did you respond then to the gospel? Yeah, you know, it's funny um, because my high school experience, I think, actually was just sort of like, you know, in retrospect, I feel like it was just sort of training wheels for living in America for the last five years uh-huh. um, because I grew up in an absolutely classical uh, white evangelical context. And I know that a lot of people say like white evangelicalism is 100 percent bankrupt. I'm not there. I have a lot of affection uh, these are the people that that first showed me Jesus. They loved me. Uh, they were a family to me when I didn't have a very strong family. Mm. Um, but the truth is this, is that um, while I had sort of surrogate spiritual parents kind of walking with me through high school, um, towards the end of my high school experience, uh, I, had, I had something pretty important happen to me. I was, uh, I went to this conference in Washington, D.C., uh, this will date me, but it was called DCLA, and it happened back in like 97, 98. <laughs> okay. um, and so uh, so I go to this conference, and it's like all the latest CCM artists, and it's all the big-name speakers, and like there's like 20,000 young adults at this thing. And I, I don't know how to say except that I was just very bored. I did not find myself sort of activated or moved. Um, and uh, the very last day... Uh, this this guy gets up and says, hey, across the street, we're going to have um, last minute uh, a talk from a guy named Tony Campolo. And and I go, oh, Campolo, I think I've heard that name before. So I go across the street and Tony ends up preaching this sermon that really becomes the fork in the road for me. The, the path that I thought I was going to go down suddenly was no longer the path I could walk. And um, one of Tony's big points that he made was um, there are over 2,000 passages of Scripture about God's concern for the poor. And that, for me, as a guy who grew up, I mean, I grew up reading the Bible. I grew up around the Bible. And I opened the Scriptures, and it was like someone had stolen my Bible and inserted verses into it Mm. that were not there before. Um, Out of that experience, I ended up my senior year of high school. I took African-American history. I was the only white guy in the class. I took the Holocaust, um, which was led by one of my Jewish teachers. There were survivors that came in and uh, spoke with us. Um, And out of that experience, um, diving into those things, um, my faith was really on life support by the end of that year. Um, And so I did what any reasonable person does. I signed up to be a missionary and uh, (laughs) I moved to uh, I moved to California and lived in Oakland. Um, in the lower bottoms where the Black Panther Party had previously formed. And um, and through the course of that year, being at a, you know, I was one of like eight white people at my church. I played drums for all the services. We played black gospel music. Um, and to be in an environment where I could no longer assume that my way of seeing was the default way of seeing the world. Yes. I was the minor. I was the minority. And you did that intentionally. Um, yeah. So yeah. why was your faith on life support during that time? After well, studying. I mean, if you, yeah, I mean, you study the Holocaust and then you study African American history, and um, how in the world can there be a loving God in the face of such absolute horror? Um, and um, how can there be a loving God when more often than not the perpetrators of that horror mm. were Christians? Right. Um, those those two pieces combined um, just felt untenable to me, and. Uh, 
So yeah, that that year really became a transformative thing. Seeing God, God at work on the asphalt in my neighborhood, just in the lives of people. Um, but then the other thing is that I came across this book, The Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey. Oh yeah, good one. That that book blew my mind. Uh, so um, the Jesus I was raised with and the actual Jesus of the Bible, turns out they were not the same person. And uh, and my view of him was wrong. And so Yancey's book just became really fundamentally important to me. So, um, so yeah, so I mean, out of that experience, um, you know, a few kind of things fell into place that have really become the theme for my life. So uh, number one, living in that neighborhood and studying the things that I studied, seeing the things I did, social action became very important to me personally. Um, the second piece would be uh, because I came from a family that had a lot of relational dysfunction. Um, the pursuit of healthy relationships became really important to me. And then finally, um, spiritual formation. Um, and those three things have really kind of been the themes of my life. Uh, social action, relational health, spiritual formation. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, what does it look like to, to walk with Jesus and um, to love him, to love other people and not be completely dysfunctional? We've seen what happens when people are really they got the right theology, but they're relationally dysfunctional. Right. Um, and we've seen what happens even when people, you know, are, are amazing social activists, but they lack the gospel or that they have the gospel, but they don't engage in activism. Uh, so I think, I just think that there's, um, it's really important that we, that we hold those things together just as the Bible does. Yeah, absolutely. I think all those things are important. I tend to focus on spiritual formation because that's my, uh, that's my bent. That's the thing that I really care about. And I think to your point, it, nothing makes me crazier than somebody who is not spiritually mature leading something, right? Like that, that they need to be right. spiritually mature for because they can speak or whatever it is. That's just not, uh, not a good reason to put somebody in that, in that position. And it causes a lot of damage as we've seen. Yeah. And, and we have seen it, you know, and, and I think that even like the Enneagram becomes a useful tool in those conversations, right? Mm. Because, you know, if you take, you know, for example, uh, if you take something like uh, the type three, so I, I am a, I'm a three wing four and um, you take something like the three and you take the unhealthy side of the three and you take that train all the way to the end of the station. And, you know, that's where you get Hillsong, New York City. You get all image, celebrities in the front row. It's all about success. Um, you know, you take that non-resourceful eight stuff, you take that all the way to the end, you get Driscoll. So I think like we need a really high dose of self-awareness. Uh, if we are going to be people that are going to really truly show people mm -hmm. this is what abundant life looks like, relational health is pretty fundamental uh, to that. Um, you can have all the right theology, your gospel will be seen as bankrupt uh, unless you actually are relationally healthy. Yeah. Right. Well, because you won't be able to live it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. In the book, I talk about this, um, you know, throughout the ages, people have always said, what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? My conviction is is this, and it's simple. The purpose of life is relationships. I believe the totality of scripture attests to that reality. Um, we exist for the good of others. We need others. Others need us. So everything we do in life, this conversation I'm having you with, with you right now, uh, when I shop at the grocery, when I go on vacation, the way I spend my money, everything 
it is all about relationships. Um, and so if that's true, then we have to understand our approach to relationships. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And of course you're talking about interpersonal relationships. Like, so for me, a lot changed when I learned, when I figured out that the, what the Bible is trying to tell me wasn't a list of things that I should be doing, but about a relationship, right? And relationships. And so how God is, how do I interact with God? How do I live a life with God? Wholly different, wholly different idea for how to, how to approach scripture and not only interpret it, but then also apply it to, you know, the people around me and all that. But right. Yeah. It changes, yeah. changes a lot. Okay. So for you, so you go into this, this time self-awareness. I, so I also want to hit on this because I mean, that's really what the Enneagram gives us, right? Is the self-awareness helps us understand. I can't tell you how many people I hear who are really uncomfortable with that, uh, having us uh, mm -hmm. think about self-awareness as if, Self-awareness and self-interest, selfishness are the same thing. Mm -hmm. Why is that not true? Well, let me say this. Um, I think that uh, any and all tools can be abused. And I think that the Bible is the greatest example of that ever. So if the Bible is, is you know, the most beautiful and true document, you know, that's ever been given to us, it's a gift from God, uh, and can we think of something that's been abused more than the scriptures itself? So I think in, in, uh, when people worry about, well, self-awareness is just going to kind of turn you into a narcissist. Well, chances are actually self-awareness, if you do have some of those tendencies, is going to actually help you. Oh my gosh, I'm talking about myself too much. Oh my gosh, I'm referencing myself too much. I'm thinking about my own motives too much. Mm -hmm. Um and the reality is, is that there are people, there are plenty of people that are very self-involved, but there are also lots of people that don't think about themselves enough. There are a lot of people that defer to others so much that they become ill-defined themselves as people. They don't know what they want. They don't know what they're aspiring after. They don't know uh, what their vision in life is. And the risk is this. When you get to middle age and you have deferred your life to other people for 40 years, you're pretty hacked off by the time that you realize, uh, oh my gosh, I've been living somebody else's life. Mm -hmm. um, so self-awareness, um, self-awareness, uh, let me say it this way, it is impossible to have spiritual maturity without self-awareness. You can't have vocational flourishing, you can have marital flourishing, you can have flourishing with your kids. Um, self-awareness is, is absolutely critical. Jesus had profound self-awareness many of the disciples did not. And, uh, and so, um, so I, you know, if you think of the inverse, um, does God really want us to be ignorant about who we are, the real things driving us, the real things that compel us, yes. the motives behind what we do, you know, um, that, that makes, it's illogical. Man, I love that because I, I call it that particular part of the journey and maybe it's a lifetime, but so it's not always linear. Like you go through it and you just come out on the other side. I think, Maybe that's true for some people, but that part of the journey, I call it finding yourself in Christ, right? So it's yeah. not about, it is about you, but it's also about your relationship with him and who he's telling you to be, right? So mm -hmm. give me a story or two about how you, as you come to this realization, you're diving into social action, relational health and spiritual formation, how you started to find yourself in Christ. 
Yeah. Um, well, I think, um, you know, there's a couple a couple of thoughts. Let, let me start with actually a story of, of when I did not. I thought that I was. Um, and that was um, so I, I worked on staff at a homeless shelter for nine years. And um, so we'd spend every day, you know, helping to take care of our city's poor citizens in desperate need, people who slept out the night before, people who, you know, had just really lived horrific stories. And um but they would come in every day and we'd sit there and we'd talk about Jesus loves you. Jesus has a, a, a plan for your life. Uh, you know, trust him. Um, your life will be so much better if you do. Um, and the whole time behind the scenes, all the staff, we were all bickering with each other. Mm -hmm. We actually had very, very low trust with one another. We would undermine each other. We'd gossip about each other. Um, we would second guess each other. We would avoid each other. Um and uh, and so the reality was we were teaching a gospel to others that we ourselves had no idea how to live out. Um, it was sort of like we were like airplane salesmen, hoping no one asked us if we actually knew how to fly. You know, <laughs> it was like it was just like very bad. So like so that was a moment in which I began to realize, um, you know, I, I don't really think I know who I am in Christ at a deep level. Um and that I've got some work to do. And part of that work is uh, was me trying to live in reality. You know, a lot of us have these ideas about ourselves that are just that they're they're without merit. They're just, it's not it's not true. Mm -hmm. And so part of the journey towards finding out who I was in Christ was I also needed to wake up to the truth. Now here's the good news. As I did, I began to wake up to some of my relational patterns that were really dysfunctional. Um what I was also reminded of is that while I was surprised by some of the findings, uh, God was not. Mm. You know, Jesus had held me and known those things from the beginning. And so I didn't need to be afraid to wake up to reality or live in reality because that's only, that's the only place God is. Um, and um, so so to be reminded of that um, was really important. The, the other thing uh, that came to mind was this. As the years went on and I began to really realize for me how much uh, I desperately did need um, to know that God loved me, one of the things that became very clear was this, is that so many of us believe that the deepest thing about us is that we are sinners. Mm -hmm. And it is true that we are sinners. But the deepest and truest thing about us is this, before we are sinners, we are loved. The truest and deepest thing about us is that we are loved. And I I need to know that because otherwise I will go out and I will attempt to prove my worth to the world. I will I will write a book. I will go on a podcast. I will create the I will do whatever I've got to yeah. do in order to try to show the world that I'm valuable. Um and uh, but in Christ, I don't have to do that. So I then have the option to go, I'm going to, I'm going to bring these gifts to the Lord and use them to love other people instead of me trying to prove myself. Yes. I have a, I have a phrase, maybe this is my Enneagram fourness, but I, it's uh, uh, completely accepted and perfectly loved. Right. Yeah. That's those things yeah. are true of us. I think. Yes. Uh, and that's even um, taking into account sin, right? We're still completely accepted because he can take care of the sin through the cross. Um, interesting. Okay. So take, what was, what that process look like for you? Was it, were you reading books? Did you have some good mentors? Did you have like, 
what did counseling like what were the what were the things that you did the practices yeah. that really helped you kind of go through it was that where you discovered the enneagram i don't know what was what was helpful yeah it, it was so so the enneagram did play a very pivotal pivotal role uh at that moment in time for me and um and uh one of the big pieces was that I I found a spiritual director, so a guy mm-hmm. named Dr. Richard Plass. Um, Rich wrote a really great book called um, The Relational Soul. Um, highly recommend it. Um, but Rich walked with my wife and I for three years, and um, and really just sat with us. And and it was like sitting with Rich was like one of those counseling sessions where um, you know, like sometimes you sit with people and you're like, you got to be very Christian, you know, like there's a sense in which like. You you need to say the right answers because if you don't, it's kind of kind of ruffle their feathers. And Rich was not that. Rich, Rich was like, you know, the sessions were rated R. Like, here's the truth of what's going on, and here's where I am, and here are my real thoughts, and here are my real struggles. And Rich just invited a space that allowed me to show up with the truth of who I was. Um, and then and then he was able then out of that to go, well, here's the truth of who God is, and here's how he responds to you, and here's how he loves you. So there was a um, it was very much a sense of an older man journeying with me in a season that was mm. really, really important to me. See, that I think is really powerful. I, I try to, friends, I try to impress this on you whenever I can. Sometimes you need to be that person for somebody. And sometimes you need to find that person. Uh, sometimes I say, if you, when you find somebody who is down the road from you and can help you walk through some of these things, grab on it, don't ever let go, <laughs> like, like just follow them and, and talk to them. There's my first podcast interview, which I don't think you can even find in iTunes anymore because I've had too many episodes, but you can go find it on halfwaytherepodcast.com. It was with a woman named Carolyn Schmidt, who basically is Jesus at my church, right? Like she, she just, she disciples people. She loves people. She will talk to you for hours. She will give you a book. We'll talk about a book the next time I see her. She's got it for me. Like I didn't, okay, well, I don't know. But she she does that. So these people are amazing. And you found somebody like that who really could walk with you and be real with you. Because the funny thing is, uh, the gospel makes us more real, right? Not less real. So if it's making you that, that's a problem. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I, and I think too, like in this, you know, and this is what I'm about to say is not prescriptive for everybody, but I'm saying that where I was at that time, I had um, gone through a variety of biblical counseling, you know, traditional, when you think of classic biblical counseling, I had done that for about 15 years with different people. Mm. And um, and I had just, I had arrived at a point in which I needed also someone else to look at some other elements in my story and in my wife's story. Both of us come from a, a lot of trauma in our backgrounds. You know, my, my wife's father was an alcoholic until just before we met each other. Um, you know, there, there's just a lot there. And so, uh, so Rich was also somebody who, um, was qualified to be also be able to look at some of the psychological components of what was going on. And that was good for me too, because it, it demoralized some of the things that were happening. You know, we Mm. Christians, we just have a tendency to make everything. It's either sin or faith. Um, and Rich took something and said, Hey, let's just look at this and let's just not judge it for a second. And then out of that, it began to let me be more curious about how is God showing up in this moment instead of me sort of being worried about like sin policing. Um, and in no way, I don't want to paint yeah. all biblical counselors in that light. There are wonderful biblical counselors out there. Um, but equally, when we only look at things as 
the Bible is the only source of information that we can utilize, um, I, I do think there are some risks that we can come up against. Well, so this goes back to my point about um, knowing yourself, right? So absolutely, I think the Bible can show us some things about ourselves. Bible kind of can be a mirror to show us like, hey, this is how some people relate to God, and maybe you see yourself in some of that. Uh, but also, uh, but it doesn't always, right? And we there's things that we know now. So I think there are tools. We can talk about the Enneagram. We can talk about whether Myers-Briggs or other personality issues or just psychology um, that can help us understand ourselves and understand, you know, I'm there's understand how this goes for many people, right? People who see the patterns, see how to break it, whatever, whatever it is. And that can be really, really helpful. I think spiritual direction too is a underused um, resource. Let's say it that way. Yeah. 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 I agree. You know, and there are, there are just so many important pieces of information that have been made available to us since, you know, the canon of the Bible has been closed and, um, and the Bible, um, is sufficient for all matters of godliness and wisdom, but it is not the only piece of information that we can access. Um, and so we understand how oxygen works, you know, we understand right. how, you know, Alzheimer's, you know, we understand, uh, how engines in a car run, like they're just, there are pieces of information that God and his goodness have given us, um, even from unlikely sources. Um, and they all serve under the authority of the scriptures. Um, but the scriptures are not the only piece of information mm. we can access. Yes. And amen. I love that. Okay. So spiritual direction helped you kind of take a look at yourself and walk through that, that season. And you said that this was when you discovered the Neagram kind of tell us how you started to get into you know, this and how you, how yeah. you founded um, Love That Neighborhood too. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, um, so yeah. Uh, so in the middle of sort of um, the homeless ministry, we were all like bickering with each other. And so the, the board of directors actually did an intervention and that's where I met Rich Plass and, and his, um, uh, his teammate, uh, Jim Cofield. And uh, those guys introduced me to the Enneagram, man, the first time I read it, I was like, ah, I mean, it just <laughs> freaked me out. Um the resonance that I felt both with type three and type four were just off the charts. Um, my my wife and I went through a really uh, hard season of marriage. We ended up seeing Rich, as I talked about before. Uh, and um, the big piece for me, you know, uh, in that was just really coming to realize like, um, man, there's ways for me to support my wife that I don't think to because I don't have the same struggles and burdens as her. Mm. Um and uh, so it gave me a lot more empathy for her. And, she, and you know, she always says it helped her to realize that I uh, was not making decisions just to drive her nuts, um, that that uh, that it was just a different way of seeing things. So. Right. So, yeah. So out of out of that, um, out of that, there's um, there's all this work that begins to happen sort of interpersonally. You know, Lindsay and I are, are working on getting healthier. Uh, some changes happen at the mission, uh, the homeless mission. And uh, then there's this moment where um, somebody comes to me and they say, hey, if if we gave you some money, would you launch a ministry? So I had been at the shelter leading an internship program for young adults, and I would recruit them from all over the place, and they'd come serve people who were homeless. And And this person came and said, if we gave you some money, would you do that but for more ministries? And I was like, well, Yeah. So they did. They gave us this really, really generous uh, startup uh, funds. And so back in 2014, um, we launched Love That Neighborhood. And 
really our goal at the beginning was we just want to be like the Peace Corps with Bibles. Like that that's <laughs> kind of it. Like we're going to we're going to recruit young adults from all over the world. They're going to come here. They're going to serve people in need. And we partner with all these like just killer, wonderful ministries around the city. I mean, everything from like, you know, a ministry that goes into uh, strip clubs, taking uh, people who work their hot meals and talking about Jesus to a ministry that's next door to uh, the only abortion clinic in Louisville, uh, all the way to arts ministries, uh, you know, working with people that are in um, foster care. So, I mean, just all kinds of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, so we've had hundreds of young adults come through our program and it's a full immersion lifestyle. They live in community with each other. Uh, they uh, they live in an, um, an impoverished neighborhood and get to know their neighbors. They're part of a, a multi-ethnic church. Um, and, uh, and our hope is that over time, not that everybody will go into urban ministry, but our hope is um, that people will still go on to be doctors and teachers um, and uh, but they would be a different kind of doctor and a different kind of teacher and that this experience would shape them uh, in some really important ways. And so um, so as uh, through the years, uh, the Enneagram has become a, a key part of some of the work that we do. And so uh, we want to help young adults have self-awareness, but we want to help everybody else have self-awareness too. So initially we only did our sort of gap year program and then eventually we added our podcast. So we have the Love the Neighborhood podcast, which is uh, if you baptized NPR, that's our show. <laughs> that's good. Uh, and we uh, we explore very simple topics like uh, gender dysphoria <laughs> and addiction. And uh, we just did this week was social justice. And um, and so we equally irritate conservatives and progressives. Um, Perfect. And so uh, <laughs> so you can check that out. And then we did then we added the Enneacast, um, exploring the um, the Enneagram um, and the gospel. And then uh, now we do workshops as well. And so we do um, both private and corporate workshops. And yeah, but, but but again, if you look at sort of the scope of the work, it comes back to those three themes that have sort of always been a part of my life, social action, relational health, and spiritual formation. Um, and, uh, and just, you know, yeah, trying to do what I can and with the time of me here to, to, to steward some of that. Yeah, super powerful. I love that. Really interesting. I mean, that must have been a great moment. Someone said, "Hey, will you, will you do this?" and kind of inspired all this, uh, all this action, which I think is really, really wonderful. Okay, so tell us about you know deciding to write, how we relate, and what you're hoping people will get out of it. Yeah. Uh, so um, I went and I was having uh, I had lunch with a buddy of mine um, who was a published author and I said, hey, I think I'm finally kind of at the stage in life where I, I would like to try to write something. And I sort of pitched three different ideas to him uh, for three separate books. And uh, the next day, his agent calls me and says, uh, if you're willing to do the one in the Enneagram, I would really love for us to try to to do something with this. So I spent, I mean, it was about a year and a half uh, just sort of massaging the um, the book proposal to be what I really wanted it to be. Um, but the vision in the end was, I, um, again, there's so much great, great teaching on the Enneagram. A lot of it is not from a Christian perspective. And even a lot of the content that is from a Christian perspective tends to sort of be Bible verses sort of sprinkled on top. And I really, really wanted to do something mm. that was going to drive people um, straight into the arms of Christ. And in particular, um, do, you, do you know Donald Miller? Oh, yeah. He's a business coach. Yeah. Yep. So D Donald Miller wrote, wrote um, 
the book Story Brand. And in that book, he talks about the the two movements that corporations and brands need to do in order to get people's trust. And so he says the first thing is you got to empathize with them. So what is the pain that your customer is going through? And the second piece is you have to display your authority. Why should they trust you? And ultimately, then they do trust you, and then that's why they buy your product. Well, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, well, gosh, isn't that just the journey to trust in general? I mean, isn't it that like when we think of we, – we divulge something really personal, really painful, really embarrassing, and the other person goes, I've been there. I know what that feels like. And instantly we go, oh, they get us. Mm-hmm. Now – that empathy piece is so, so critical, but we live in an age where some people just stop at empathy. And so it's like, I've got this person that loves me, but I have no plan on what in the world I'm going to do about my problem. Well, then you've got this other side that goes, well, just tell people what to do, but they have like no empathy. Right. They're like, they're kind of buttholes. You know, they're just, they're just like telling everybody like, do this, do this, do this. <laughs> I've, I have a phrase um, for that. It's, it's A for J. Like that's, I think yeah, you get the idea. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And so, uh, so, um, so then I was thinking about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was thinking about you know all the success that 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 they go through, and all the thousands of lives, people that they've helped get sober, and all of it is you know if I'm if I'm a recovering alcoholic and I go and I'm early in my recovery, they pair me with a, a sponsor, and that person empathizes with me because they've been where I have been, where I am now, and that person has shown that they're healthy enough that there's a way out of this. And uh, and I started thinking, man, what does it mean for us to believe that about Jesus? So if if the scriptures attest to this idea that we pray to the God that empathizes with us, we pray to a God, that, a high priest that understands us, who's who's felt our afflictions. Um, in what way is that leading us to deeper trust? And so that led to the the thought of uh, um, of uh, empathy plus authority equals trust. And it's one of the ideas I talk about in the book is. How does Jesus empathize with your deepest wound? And then in what way does he affirm you and say, these are the wonderful things about who you are, but also these are the ways he confronts you um, and models his authority to call you out and to call you forward. Um, But that's going to come as a starting point with a piece of good news. He's not just going to say, go do these things. He's going to proclaim something over you. He's going to bestow something over you. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so the book, the book is really centered around help people understand their relational style, their psychological profile. This is kind of how you're wired as a person. And in what ways does Jesus meet you in that? Um, you didn't come from nowhere. You've lived a story and that story has a lot of pain in it. How does Jesus step into that pain? Mm-hmm. But then how does he call you forward? Yeah, because that's what he does, right? That's exactly what he does. And it, but we have to be willing uh, to embrace that being the story, right? That that he he doesn't reject all those things. We don't have to become a totally new person, even though, even though we are new, right? He uses yeah. all those things, right? And and unfortunately, a lot of times in Christendom, you know, we'll say this. We got this phrase. We'll go. It doesn't matter what I want. It's only yeah, what Jesus what? wants. And and a lot of times we're kind of going. I mean you're kind of describing Christian Buddhism, you know, this sort of notion that you cease to exist and you have been replaced with a clone of Jesus or something. And, uh, and I don't think that that's what the scriptures are getting at. You know, Jesus is talking about when he asks us to, to, um, you know, to put ourselves to death, he's talking about this idea of this false self, this sinful self, this broken self, this independent self. 
Um, he is not asking us to eradicate the totality of who we are. He's not inviting us to mm. be annihilated. Um, he's inviting us to be set free and to live in the freedom of of who we are in Christ. Okay, that actually is a really interesting point. This is the um, – it seems like the emphasis of the relational soul book that you mentioned earlier, right, is false self versus yeah. true self. Um, and there's a number of other books that I've read on that topic as well. But that is an interesting piece that I haven't, I guess I kind of have talked about in the knowing, finding yourself in Christ. What happens is, so that's in the dark night of the soul. God takes away these identities that we thought we had to have, right? So for some people in ministry, it's your identity as a worker at the church and doing good for the kingdom or whatever. And then he gives you different identities that are actually who you are and who he wanted you to be all the time, right? Like, and, and yeah. those are new things. Um, sounds like for you, the, some of that process was, you know, leaving some of the broken relationships and relationship tactics and, and, uh, ways of relating, I guess is what I'm trying to say, uh, for more like spiritual formation and building healthy relationships. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that the biggest piece, and you know, this is, this is something, you know, that I continue to struggle with, you know, it's something that's, it's, it's always kind of there and peeking over my shoulder, ready to kind of be a problem again. And it's, it really does come back to that idea of, um, of, um, needing to prove my worth mm -hmm. in some way. And the big invitation, especially, you know, when I first kind of came across the Enneagram, this is a decade ago was, I mean, I've got a, the homeless shelter ministry is a disaster. We're on the verge of bankruptcy. Lindsay and I are not doing well. You know, my my kids are little and they're kind of scared of me because I've got a temper. You know, it's like this is very bad. And so much of my identity was about I got to prove myself. Mm -hmm. I got to get out there. I got to get out there and I got to put my best my best face forward um, in, in order for people to love me. And to have failed so spectacularly in so many ways um, was God's gentle way of saying, there's not a moment here where I didn't love mm. you. And there's not a moment here in which you weren't mine. Um, and you can go fail as much as you want to. Um, I'm going to love you all the same. That his love, his love for me does not increase or decrease according to my behavior or my performance. Yeah. I love that. Super powerful. Okay. So, Again, the book is How We Relate, Understanding God, Yourself, and Others Through Enneagram. That's all about uh, relationships. It's out now. You can get it at Amazon or wherever you get your books. Or, and your website is lovethyneighborhood.org, correct? Yeah, yeah. If you go to lovethyneighborhood.org, you can learn all about our urban missions programs for young adults. You can learn about our podcasts. And then you can also learn about our workshops. So if uh, whether you want to do a workshop with your church or you work for a company, we actually offer a corporate version. So yeah, there's yeah. lots of choices. I love that friends. If your heart is stirred just a little bit and you're thinking maybe in the back of your mind, I need that. First of all, go get the book. Second of all, hit that uh, website, lovetheneighborhood.org and reach out to Jesse and get a, get a uh, workshop at your church or your, your business, wherever, wherever you happen to be. I think it'll be helpful for sure. Jesse, I really appreciate it. You helped us think a lot about, um, you know, that sort of, uh, true self, false self stuff. I think it's really, really powerful and I appreciate it. Is there something you want to leave us with? 
Uh, here's what all I would say is that uh, the Enneagram can be a contentious uh, topic for people, and uh, there's a lot of uh, bad information on the internet and a lot of rumors and things that look like evidence are actually, if you look a little deeper, are not quite the evidence that they appear to be. All that to say is that um, we are doing uh, some additional work on helping Christians think through uh, should Christians use the Enneagram, but we already have one piece available. So if you want to explore that question in particular, is it okay? Uh, what, you know, should I have all these concerns? Again, just head over to our website and um, yeah, there's a whole thing there about should Christians use the Enneagram that hopefully will assist you. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Jesse. Thanks for being here. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks, Eric.